Money FM 89.3. Best of breakfast. Morning shot. Welcome to Morning Shot. I'm Ahmad Akhtar. Now, in recent decades, we've seen a dramatic increase in international governmental organizations. If you take a think, the birth of these organizations is generally motivated by a desire to enhance dialogue among countries in hopes of finding global solutions to political and economic issues. Despite the good intentions, however, there are often complex challenges that prevent specific issues from getting solved in a cohesive manner. For example, COVID-19 and wars have highlighted the chaotic end of multilateralism for some. But others argue that international cooperation could help establish the basis for coordinated efforts over the longer term. So the million-dollar question is, do we still need international institutions today? To help us answer that question and more, we're joined by Dr. Lincoln Mitchell, who's a lecturer at the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University. Dr. Mitchell, thank you so much for tuning in from the Big Apple. How are you? Very nice. Very good. Thank you for having me. Always (laughs) a pleasure to talk about these. Pleasure to have you on as well. Let's kick things off by asking you for your opinion about what role these institutions play in addressing current global challenges and how their functions have evolved over time. Well, these institutions, and generally we're thinking of things like the World Health Organization, the United Nations, NATO, you know, things like that, they really come into their own after World War II. And during the decades after World War II, really the Cold War, on the one hand, they're important in keeping the major players in what was in a bipolar world, also China, after they got that seat in the 1970s, in dialogue with each other. And others in the IMF and the World Bank in really solidifying the American, what became kind of the American moment for American hegemony, which began after the Cold War, but beginning in the Cold War. So these are both, on some level, instruments to bring countries together in dialogue, which is always important. But they are also ways to expand American power, and particularly the NATO, the IMF, the World Bank, American and Western power, the European Union. No, so the United Nations, you know, doesn't prevent wars, right? We still have the decades of wars all over the world, but sometimes it does. And sometimes United Nations agencies and organizations and peacekeepers can help end wars more quickly. Not always, right? These are not, not perfect, but... You know, the the danger of walking away from international institutions entirely and saying, well, they're not working well, so now we're just going to go back to what we had before. That doesn't seem like a great idea either, particularly as in such a globalized world, you know, so many of the things that threaten the security of kind of individuals around the world are interconnected. Pandemic, you didn't mention climate change, but that's a massive one as well. Mm. So we have to think global strategies to address what are increasingly global problems. All right. Some critics argue that the decision-making processes within these international organizations are dominated by a few powerful nations. You mentioned one of them, the United States. Uh, Is that true in your opinion? And how can these institutions adapt to ensure a more equitable representation considering the changing dynamics of global power? Well, there's no question that the United States plays an outsized role and Mm. has power in these institutions. However, if you were to talk to a lot of Americans in the foreign policy area, they would tell you how frustrated they are that, you know, U.N. commissions on human rights are led by countries with abysmal human rights records and that the United Nations very frequently doesn't get what it wants in the U.N. So it doesn't win all the time. Um, In addition, there are other organizations coming up really driven by China, which is the second most powerful country in the world at this point. You know, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization is a great example of that. You know, if you look at just to pick a very specific example in one of my fields, 
Uh, if you look at election monitoring, 20 years ago, you know, the elections were monitored by the OSCE, the Organization mm. for Security in Europe, which is the U.S. and U.S. ally-dominated organization. But now there are parallel organizations out of Moscow and China that are observing elections and coming up with very, very different conclusions. So one issue is the emergence of parallel organizations, and the other is democratizing some of the existing ones. So, for example, in the U.N., you know, the five permanent seats on the U.N. Security Council have not changed in you know since the founding of the UN in San Francisco in the 1940s, and this question, or nor has that number been expanded. But there are certainly regional powers that perhaps should be considered, uh, or I would say should be definitely be considered for permanent seats on the Security Council. You know, India, for example, is an obvious. This is you know one of the two most populated countries in the world, massive economic power, huge regional power, and would be an additional representative from the global south, which would be very important. So there are ways to democratize this, and my sense is that in the long run. That is probably good for the United States, but there's a lot of people in the United States that aren't going to see it that way. Now, another factor to consider here is that we live in an era of rising nationalist and populist governments. We've seen the rise of various, or many of them rather, across the world. Some argue that countries are, as a result, becoming more reluctant to cooperate through international institutions. What can these organizations do to demonstrate that they're still of value? Well, that's a, that's a really important way to think about this. These populist movements, which are to some extent rooted in reaction to globalization, particularly from the demographic groups within these countries, which all skew rural, older, less educated, who have not benefited from globalization. So on the economic front, you really do see a movement away from globalization, right, from, from doing things cooperatively, you know, bringing production back to the country, shortening supply chains. All of this stuff, which is part because of the populist movement, part because of a reaction to COVID when those long supply chains became a problem. And this is a very daunting challenge because this is not something these international organizations are set up to do, right? They're not set up to address problems, political problems within state, right? They are representatives of state. Now, a smart populist leader, and I would not put, you know, our populist leader in this country does qualify as smart, but there are some, recognizes that they could still benefit from being players in those organizations. But, you know, we also have to be aware of what is the mandate? What is the mission of it? Is the World Health Organization simply to, you know, support health programs and help uh, fight disease or is to fight populism, right? Mm. Is the United Nations to prevent wars or to really work on political development? And this has been a tension in the United Nations where I think the United States view is the United Nations should help make the world democratic. And there's a lot of countries that don't want to do that. Mm. So these are tensions that, you know, how do we define the roles here? All right. You've talked about the rise of China and India and how that might reshape or remake international relations. Who else do you think is at the top rung of that table? And how is that going to change the international world order, in your opinion? Well, my sense is that there are a number, you know, China is the only country other than the U.S. that is a global power. You know, China is, is involved on every continent, just like the United States. No other country really meets that. But there are a number of countries that are important regional powers. Brazil, South Africa, Iran, Saudi Arabia, India, I've mentioned. The European Union, which is not a country, but is a group of countries, is also a power on the global stage. So, you know, in the United States, as you know, particularly at this moment, there's a lot of talk about, you know, the China threat, the rise in China. Are we headed towards war with China? And those are important questions. But another way to think about it is, are we moving towards a multipolar world? A world where the U.S. still remains the most powerful country in the world. There's no guarantee of that. But where, you know, the number two is probably China, but the real issue is 
that the distance between the number one and the five most powerful countries in terms of resources and power and influence is much less than it used to be. That looks like a multipolar world. The United States might still be the strongest. And, you know, there's a scenario where, depending on what happens in November of next year, the, the status of the United States and the world could really change. I mean, we have to be very honest about this. Trump's re-election would put the stability of the United States in crisis. And the most important thing propping up, keeping the United States power in place, its stability. And a Donald Trump election would threaten that. And the rest of the world knows that. Let's get back to the origin of what we've been talking about and why we're here. Do we actually need this top table at all? Do we need multilateral institutions that, as some pundits might argue, are only really acting as vehicles for countries to advance their own self-interest? Well, my sense is that the answer to that question is yes, and that those mm. pundits aren't necessarily wrong. Because my view is those two, those two realities can coexist. Yes, of course, what every state does, particularly large states that aren't dependent on other states, is they seek to advance their self-interest. The question is how and in what format. The organization that brings countries together in dialogue is very important. So let me just give you an example. Mm. We think of the United Nations as, you know, China, Russia, uh, the United States, you know, Germany. But the United Nations is the place where Ireland and Uruguay can be in dialogue, right? Where Georgia and Malawi can be in dialogue. Right. That's, and not just nations, but those international organizations bringing together the countries that aren't super powerful, right, that aren't very powerful, that are smaller countries, often weaker countries in a kind of international security context, to bring them into dialogue together is very important. These small states benefit a lot. And as for the bigger states, look, there's no question, just for example, that the United States or Russia is going to do what they want to do on the international stage, regardless of whether they get, you know, the sign off from the United Nations. But it can help prevent some of those conflicts. And it can keep that dialogue and keep a place for dialogue when you're not going to have it anywhere else. So there is value there. But it's, again, it's not it's not as strong as, you know, the U.N. is not some global government, regardless of what some people might think of it. It's just simply not that powerful. All right, Dr. Mitchell, thank you so much for that overview. It's been a pleasure chatting with you on the show. Enjoy your evening and the Big Apple. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be on. Always a pleasure to have you on as well. We've been in conversation with Dr. Lincoln Mitchell, a lecturer at the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University. What is the relevance of international organizations and multilateral bodies? Do we still need them if they're unable to come up with cohesive solutions to some of the complex issues that we face? To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.